Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When you hear people discussing rising water levels, you probably only think of sea level rise, but what about lake level rise? Today's guest is Deanna Epps, a physical scientist with the Detroit District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. She analyzes and forecasts water levels in the Great Lakes and produces weekly and monthly forecasts. As the region continues experiencing record water levels, We'll ask her about the factors at play and how local agencies are working to mitigate impacts like coastal flooding and erosion. Let's dive into it. Deanna, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to read some of your background because though you're working with water levels, she's a card-carrying weather geek. She's got a bachelor's degree in meteorology from Oswego State University and a master's degree in geography from Michigan State University. So uh, uh, I'm sure she is, uh, knows my friend and colleague, Julie Winkler, uh, a physical scientist with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and her work focuses on Great Lakes water level forecasting. She's also a member of the International Association for the Great Lakes Research. Okay, here comes the question that I ask all Weather Geeks guests. How'd you become a Weather Geek? How'd you become interested in weather and meteorology? Uh, just, I think just like a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Weather Geeks per se, um, it, was a, it was a storm. It was a Labor Day storm of 1998. I, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, uh, and it was a derecho that moved through. When I was young, you know, I was about six, seven years old. Uh, and that kind of piqued my interest. And uh, I got a, wa- a weather workbook for Christmas in second grade. And from then on, it was all about meteorology. And, uh, you know, from then on, I just wanted to be a meteorologist. So. And, and did you all hear something that she said? Let me do a little myth dispelling here. She said derecho. So they didn't just appear five years ago or two years ago. They've been around. I know they've been in the media a lot more and some people aren't as familiar with what they are. Um, and so, you know, I get from time to time, or is this derecho, something new? Uh, but, you know, they're, they're these, you know, large scale sort of wind storms that move over large distances uh, related to outflow from storms. So, uh, you know, it's one of those cases where, you know, even in 2020, we saw a record breaking derecho in parts of Iowa and the Midwest and Great Plains. So, it's interesting because oftentimes on this show, it's a tornado or it's a hurricane or a big snowstorm. But I think you're our first derecho inspired meteorologist. Wow. That, uh, welcome to Weather Geeks history here. But in all seriousness, how did you and again, you, you have a meteorology degree and I, I resonate with your background because I have all meteorology degrees, but I actually am a professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Geography. So uh, I have a similar background to yours. So how did you migrate from meteorology into geography and why? And then how did you end up doing water level forecasting? Yeah, it's a very interesting path. Um yeah, when I when I graduated uh, from Oswego State, um, you know, there was just an opportunity that kind of uh, got lucky and fell in my lap there at Michigan State and, uh, you know, got me into the geography department. And there at the geography department at Michigan State, you know, they have a climate uh, 
climate and hydrology focused uh, part of that program. Uh, like as you mentioned, Dr. Julie Winkler is a uh, you know staff member there, and I worked with Dr. Lee Fung Lo uh, while I was there. Um, and you know, I that's when I kind of started to dabble in a little bit of the hydrology world and climate. I got a little bit more background in, in climatology. Uh, so that's kind of what set me up to transition into this more hydrology role with the core. Um, I've definitely learned a lot uh, on the job, but I find myself, you know, using a lot that I learned in, in, in meteorology. It's, you know, when you're forecasting Great Lakes water levels, it's, it's really a, almost applied meteorology and understanding um, how these water levels go up and down based on the hydrologic and meteorological conditions that are occurring. Yeah, and I, I I know several good people up there in uh, at Michigan State, and just an opportunity for the note that much of the great climate and sort of hydroclimatological work that goes on in universities around the country are in geography departments. Uh, uh, there there's a lot of synergy and connection between meteorology. Geography is not maps and capitals and things that people think geography is. It's human geography and physical geography and geomorphology and climate and a lot of other things. Because so I want to dispel that myth myth as well. Uh, again, I'm a meteorologist, but uh, we have an atmospheric sciences program in geography also at the department at University of Georgia. And so over the 15 years that I've been in that department after coming from NASA, I, I'm amazed at how people really don't understand what the discipline of geography is because they, they just know what it is from like elementary school when they're doing capitals and rivers and things like that. Um, I want to kind of pivot now to your work at the U.S. Army Corps. And shout out, by the way, to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, a great or great uh, agency, um, I believe, within the military. But the reason I know this is because I actually have a, a project right now at UGA with several colleagues with uh, Todd Bridges and some folks down here more in the southern part of, of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Water levels in the Great Lakes definitely rise and fall throughout the year. It's a natural process, as they often tell us climate scientists about climate change things. When do they typically rise and when do they typically fall? Let's just get into some basics of water level. Yeah, so uh, water levels, as, as you mentioned, you know, they, they fluctuate seasonally. Right now in the winter time uh, is about when we are at their, what, they, what we call their seasonal low. Um, as we get into the springtime and you start to see snow melt and increased uh, spring precipitation and, and runoff, that's when we typically see water levels rise in the Great Lakes. Um, as we get into the early to mid-summer months, um, that's when we start to, you know, they start to reach their peak water level. Uh, and then typically in the uh fall and early winter, that's typically when we see their decline. And the, the reason for that is is that you know over the summer months the the lake warm the lake water is warm, and once we get into the fall we start to have that colder air moving over the warmer lake surfaces, and that's really what induces evaporation. And evaporation off of the lakes is really the primary water level decline in these fall and early winter months. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point. Uh, this evaporation is sort of there's an example of coupling to the atmosphere as we know that water leaves the lake and it uh, goes into the atmosphere as well. Um, really fascinating. I'm talking with Deanna Apps, who is with the Detroit District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, talking all things lake level and water level and not just sea level. We're talking lakes. Uh, is there a particular Great Lake, given that you're in that region that experiences or has experienced in recent years or decades more water level rise or fluctuation than others? Um, you know, it's really, really these last couple years, um, 
we've really seen strong water level rises, especially the, the wet uh, springs of 2017 and 2019 really saw large rises on pretty much all of the lakes, uh, you know, from Superior to Ontario. Uh, and then, you know, recently, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are aware that, you know, we've been at record high water levels uh, on some of the lakes really over the last couple years. And, you know, a lot of that owing to some of these wet conditions and, uh, you know, really those two time periods, the, the rise and the decline period. So the rise in the spring, the decline during the fall, you know, weather conditions are really during those two times of the years can have really strong impacts. Um, you know, on that whole year, uh, you know, for example, Lake Michigan Huron um, last year, and you'll hear me say Lake Michigan Huron as one lake, uh, because the lake is connected at the Straits of Mackinac, hydraulically, we consider that they rise and fall together. So if you hear me say Lake Michigan Huron, you know, that's the, the reference there. But Lake Michigan Huron uh, last fall, the conditions were just so wet that it really had a lack of a seasonal decline in that 2019 um, and that really uh, set us up for some of the record highs we saw in that lake this year in 2020. Yeah, really interesting. And I know that we've had some record or warmer than average winter temperatures. Does that affect lake levels at all, given the what you just said about evaporation? Yeah, the, the temperature during during the, especially the early winter when there's potential for evaporation to, to still occur off of the lakes. Uh, so but that can play a, a big part. If we have like similar as to actually what we saw last year and we've seen kind of so far this year and in December where when you have those warmer than normal temperatures in the region, that temperature difference now between the air and the water is less. And so you don't, you don't get as much evaporation off of the lakes which can hinder the decline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, understanding sort of evaporation, you know, we ought to get into specific heat and heat capacity because as folks know, water uh, tends to have a higher specific heat. Uh, well, maybe you know this. And so that's why it tends to warm and cool more slowly than the land. Uh, you know, um, you know, why wouldn't you go to the beach down here in the south in Florida and Georgia, perhaps in May, even though the air temperature starting to be a little hot, uh, that water is still cold. And so I'm sure those kind of thermodynamic and thermal effects are are at play in the lakes as well. But just from a different perspective, which takes to, takes me to my next kind of curiosity uh, question for you. Uh, how does sort of the presence sort of, of ice or lack thereof uh, affect water level rise or fluctuations. Yeah, ice is a ice is a tricky one uh, because you know it, it does impact the evaporation and it doesn't impact water temperatures as well. Uh, so you know, typically, you know, if you're experiencing a cold winter where you see a significant amount of ice cover. Uh, form, you'll probably get significant evaporation because of with the ice cover formation. Um, and that can, however, it can lead to water temperatures that are much cooler. So as we go throughout the year, uh, there have been studies done that show the following fall, uh, there could be less uh, evaporation because those water temperatures are, are cooler. Uh, so there, there have been studies that have looked into that. Now, if you have more of an ice-free lake, uh, that that becomes a little bit more challenging uh, too, because although the potential for evaporation does still exist because the lake is open, doesn't mean that it's going to occur. You know, if you, if we get those warmer than normal temperatures, you know, there there might not be you know much evaporation. 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Deanna apps from uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers about lake levels and lots of interesting sort of hydrological and water and meteorological interactions. Uh, So we're going to geek out today. That's what we do on this podcast. We're going to geek out. So I want to kind of pivot now, Deanna, to something that you worked on in 2019. Uh, You presented at the International Association for Great Lakes Research Conference, uh, which focused on extreme events in Great Lakes. Uh, and I guess in the past past decade or so, and I think maybe you mentioned this, the Great Lakes have seen record low levels to near record high levels in a short period of time. Uh, what is considered to be an extreme event? What, what does that mean, an extreme event? And how do these events uh, affect the water levels in the Great Lakes? Yeah, so we at the core, we have a... a fairly about a hundred over a little over a hundred year period of record of water levels across the lakes. And this is monthly mean water levels. So our data sets go back to, to 1918 uh, for, for all the great lakes. And, you know, in that period of record, you know, we've seen periods of both high and, and low, low water. So, you know, when we say have, have reached record highs, we would typically refer to that as like a monthly record high. So, uh, you know, over these last few years uh, where we've seen these, you know, wet conditions, uh, you know, meteorological conditions and hydrologic conditions in the basin, uh, we've seen these monthly record highs occurring uh, for various months, you know, throughout these last couple years on the lakes. And so that's how, you know, we we determine what, you know, the, that, that record or extreme is just, you know, like I said, based on that period of record back to 1918 and using monthly mean water levels. Yeah, so uh, that's that's really interesting. And uh, we're talking with Deanna Apps from the uh, Army Corps and just really fascinating topic here. That's one of the reasons I love hosting Weather Geeks and I hope you love listening to it is because, you know, this is an area where I'm, I'm learning things just like you listening right now. So it's just really an honor to be able to talk to you. Uh, the next line of questioning or the next road that I want to go down um, is related to El Nino. And before we you know, get into El Nino, let me just sort of remind the listeners, and some listeners know exactly what El Nino is, and others may be like, yeah, I've heard of that, and I know it affects our weather here in the U.S., but I don't know if I really recall what it is. But you know, every two to seven years or so, uh, the eastern to central Pacific uh, water, ocean waters warm. They're anomalously warmer, and that happens due to some very interesting interactions between the ocean and the atmosphere, and it causes changes in uh, the, the atmospheric patterns, too, and jet streams and so forth, which cause changes far from the eastern and central Pacific. Uh, the, the cold phase of that or the cold anomaly of that is called La Nina. Is there any evidence that the El Nino or the ENSO cycle, the El Nino Southern Oscillation is what I mean by ENSO, that has any predictability for lake levels in your region? 
Yeah, so there have been, you know, some studies done in the, in the Great Lakes region on, and so, and, and even other teleconnections as well. Um, the the difficult part I, I find is a challenge in the Great Lakes Basin is uh, just even the difference you'll get in conditions between the Lake Superior Basin and the Lake Ontario Basin. Uh, so where, you know, the Lake Superior Basin may be, you know, more impacted by, you know, cold air plunging in uh, from the, you know, from the north during a La Nina may not impact the Lake Ontario Basin. So it's hard to really make uh, general assumptions about La Nina or El Nino really for the, for the whole basin, which, uh, you know, makes it a challenge. It's definitely something that we look at, you know, with the La Nina, you know, occurring or, you know, ongoing and, you know, looking to last through this winter. It's something that, you know, we keep an eye on. And, and as far as, you know, what that could mean for some colder temperatures in the region or wetter conditions in the region. Uh, but it, it's just, I feel like the variability is just makes it very difficult to make a strong linkage to how that impacts lake levels. And you heard Deanna mention other teleconnections because there are all kinds of other alphabet soup things that we talk about in meteorology and climatology, like the Arctic Oscillation and the North Atlantic Oscillation, um, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the PDO, AO, NAO. So when you hear scientists talk about these terms, there are these interesting sort of teleconnection type patterns that we see that are naturally varying uh, that can have uh, impacts far from their origin, which is where that word teleconnection comes from. Now, I want to sort of get more into the so what about why the Army Corps cares about lake levels. And we'll dive into that a bit more later in the podcast. But I know that there are homes along the coastal regions there and in, in built communities and so forth. Uh, what are the impacts that these communities are experiencing, if any, from, from some of the lake level changes that you observe or monitor? Yeah, the impacts across the really the Great Lakes in 2019, 2020 uh, has has been pretty impactful. Um, the the in pretty severe in certain certain regions. Uh, a lot of it, you know, depends on, uh, for example, the wind. Uh, you know, a lot of storms moving through when the lake levels are already high, and then you have a strong storm system. Let's say with you know strong, uh, you know, westerly winds moving across, you know, Lake Michigan or or Lake Erie. That can really uh, build up water on certain sides. Of the of the lake uh, make wave impacts uh, uh, more severe that can cause shoreline erosion, uh, you know, coastal flooding. Uh, a lot of these uh, issues we've seen throughout the you know really like I said throughout the Great Lakes over these last few years with dealing with high water, um, you know, property damage. Uh, it's just there's just been a number of things you know that have that have occurred. I you know I know that there's been pictures of you know houses falling into Lake Michigan. Um, the, the impacts have, have been quite severe at times, especially when, you know, these water level records are occurring sometimes in the spring um, and early summer months when, you know, that's when we're at some of the highest, you know, water levels in the system. Um, and it's just it's just created uh, some really challenging times for people and, and businesses that are that are on the shores of the Great Lakes. Yeah, and I want to kind of dig into some of the so what aspects a bit bit later in the podcast. Before we do that, I want to sort of pause here 
And uh, again, I think listeners listen to Weather Geeks, they get exposure to so many different people and their organizations. I think people generally have heard of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that may not exactly know what the agency does. Can you give us a little 101 just on who you are as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, what, what your mission is or just your broad goals? Yeah, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers really has a wide Ray of, of missions. I'd say in the Detroit district, you know, the, the Great Lakes water level mission is, is quite unique uh, to our region uh, where, you know, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of projects in, in the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, are, you know, some could be ecosystem related. You know, a lot of ones in the Detroit district are navigation based, uh, you know, keeping navigation moving through, you know, the Great Lakes. Um, you know, maybe people have realized, you know, the uh, alternate care facility mission uh, that was done by the Corps of Engineers this past, you know, spring with COVID. Uh, so they really, you know, are, you know, dabble in many different areas and just to really help, you know, how we can uh, help and assist people that, you know, need help in, in our nation. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Deanna Apps from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And I, I did mention earlier, so I want to give a big shout out to Todd Bridges and Ryan Bledsoe of the Institute for Resilient Infrastructure Systems at UGA, because one of the projects we're working on down, down here um, with the University of Georgia and, and various Army Corps partner, partners is related to engineering with nature solutions in, in, in parts of our, our region here. So uh, I, I'm, I'm becoming more familiar with the types of things that the Army Corps does. I mean, there it, there's a large mission and I, I invite our listeners to, you know, Google and, and search if you want to know a little bit more because there, there's a lot of good information and some really good projects that uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, I, I consider them one of the agencies and one of the organizations within our federal government that, you know, perhaps may not be as visible as some other agencies, but are doing things that affect our lives and are importantly every day. So thank you and your colleagues for what you do. Um, I want to kind of stay in the sort of so what realm of the discussion. Um, some shoreline landowners are requesting seawalls and retaining walls to be built to prevent property damage. Uh, is this a sustainable solution from your perspective? And are there any issues with these seawalls or retaining walls? So, you know, a lot of this uh, really is uh, dealt with in, in our regulatory office. You know, I, and I should explain our regulatory office is the one that helps issue permits. So if you're, you know, a shoreline property owner, if you want to construct, you know, something on your property, such as a seawall um, that, you know, would impact, uh, you know, the, the lake and uh, you, you need a permit for that. Uh, so, you know, this, the seawalls, uh, you know, I see them more as, you know, a, a temporary uh, solution, really. Um, it's going to, you know, provide you, you know, maybe what you need from the water level rising and it could protect you uh, from that. But there also are long-term effects to the overall, uh, you know, 
know, ecosystem there along the shoreline when seawalls are built. And so there, you know, as a solution method, you know, there, this is really, I mean, when you get to high water, it's, you know, there's only, there's only so many options that, you know, one has, whether that's building a sandbag wall or employing the, you know, a, a, a inflatable flood barrier, you know, the, you know, a seawall potentially, um, or even, you know, which is, you know, becoming a, you know, probably the most adaptable solution for the future is if you can to move, you know, your, your property further back, uh, away from the lake, uh, but, you know, it's all really going to be dependent on, you know, where you are on the lake. What what is my best course of action? Uh, so that's where it really comes down to the homeowners to, you know, to really, you know, you know, look at resources that are available to them, you know, contact, you know, have discussions with contractors and neighbors to really figure out maybe what the best course of action is in their specific area um, and, and then go from there. Yeah, and that, this sounds like one of those areas I appreciate the fact that you mentioned your regulatory people deal with these because this sounds like one of the murky aspects of your your, your job, sort of dealing with these regulatory issues and murky, pun intended, by the way. Um, but uh, this really sounds like one of those areas where as we deal with in science, as a scientist myself, um, we work in these sort of areas that have interfaces to societal relevance, but sometimes, you know, you know, we try to steer clear some of those types of things. And so we let the regulatory people and lawyers and so forth handle those. So I really appreciate your answer there. Um, you know, the storm act was recently passed and I don't know what it is, but I've heard of it. Um, what is the storm act and what does it mean for efforts to mitigate uh, rising waters and coastal erosion in your area? Yeah, I am. I'm aware that that, you know, just passed. I still haven't quite figured out uh, all the all the details with that. And I think we're, we're going to be learning, you know, obviously over these next, you know, months, you know, to figure out what that kind of means for us uh, at the core. Yeah, so it's really new. And so uh, I think our producers are kind of curious about it, too, but we didn't have a lot of information on it. But it sounds like it's still you're still in a learning curve with it yourself. Um I yeah. want to pivot now to the future. What are what are some of the advances that you hope to see in water level forecasting? And then I have a follow up question to that. I just thought of uh, as well. But w what are some of the things that you hope to see in the area of water forecasting advancement? Yeah, so, you know, one of the one of the most challenging things about water level forecasting and it is really, I think, you know, the most challenging, even from, you know, a meteorological forecast standpoint, everybody wants to know what, what the conditions are going to be in the future. I mean, that's the, you know, million dollar question. And, you know, we have our forecast that goes out six months. Uh, and so right now we're, you know, we're getting into that time period where we're, you know, we're forecasting into the, uh, you know, springtime and, and early summer. Um, but, you know, especially when you're at high water and folks are dealing with high water, sometimes people want to know, okay, well, what does that mean longer than six months? You know, are, can we expect these same high water next year or the year after? Um, and so I, I think, you know, when I got to the core a few years ago, uh, you know, I was just, you know, really learning, you know, how this forecast process works and, you know, learning about water levels and and really, I think one of the goals for, for myself is uh, at the core and, and just as a, you know, in my career is to, to really be able to use, um, you know, weather and climate forecasts to, to really help um, understand how water levels change um, and could change going into the future and have a more clear picture. And 
I don't I don't know if we we ever will uh, because of just how variable the lakes are and the different variables that impact it at different times of the year. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of pie in the sky for me is is really trying to use weather and climate forecasts to understand what lake levels could be in the future. And you talk about forecasts, as you well know, as a meteorologist yourself, we use various observations in situ, remote sensing, satellite radar and so forth, and models, uh, computer models and so forth. And I imagine you use a lot of those types of tools as well in the forecasting. Are there, I mean, this is just, if you had a magic wand and you were sort of the, uh, had all um, all the budget you need, which we know in, in the real world, that's never the case. But if you if there's something that you just wish you could have to make your job better from a from a technical or an observational or modeling standpoint, is there something that comes to mind, kind of a first order thing that comes to mind for you? Uh, Yeah, the very first thing that comes to mind and probably the biggest challenge that we have when hydroclimate scientists looking at this is the challenge of the international border. Um, So. You know, we can't just grab one data set because it might not cover Canada or it might just cover the U.S. And um, that's something is uh, which we have a what's called the coordinating committee of of the, you know, the Great Lakes really. Um, it brings hydrologists and, uh, you know, engineers from both sides of the border together uh, and we kind of hash out these issues, you know, uh, throughout the year. And I'd say that there has been, especially been progress in in recent years and, and making more, as you would say, maybe merge data sets that can help us resolve some of these issues. But, you know, even from like a climate forecast perspective, it's like every month I'm going to the Climate Prediction Center and I'm going to Environment Climate Change Canada's website because I'm trying to get both uh, to see if they're similar, if they're different and kind of, you know, kind of just hashing out some of those uh, disparities between the borders. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I, I recall some people that I guess clearly didn't understand that we have borders and different data sets during the wildfires last year um, because there were some people out there saying, see, they're lying about the fires. They stop at the in border. Uh, I, I thought that was a little, a little funny because it was just the fact that it depends on whose data set you're using and what you plot on a map. And unfortunately, a lot of people perhaps don't understand that those, you know, is not sort of universal. Different people own it. There are different formats and all kinds of challenges in working with data. So uh, again, this is the type of thing that I love when scientists like you explain those things to the to the public because they they just see maps and just see fires in the United States only and say there's no fires in Canada. Well, there are. That was just the U.S. data set being used. But uh, I want to kind of sort of start to pivot to a close here. You're a meteorologist that's working in an area that I would consider perhaps somewhat non-traditional to many students that, for example, come into my meteorology program at the University of Georgia. They they probably have this sort of narrow suite of job opportunities uh, in their mind. And frankly, one of them may not be the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Give some advice to a a young student out there that may be thinking about future jobs in this atmospheric sciences and meteorology and how you sort of, what your experiences were as you navigated into an area that perhaps wasn't obvious as a meteorological landing spot for your career, but that sounds like you're doing quite well and are happy there. Yeah, you know, for, for me, I, I feel pretty lucky because I somehow found my way to this. Um, but I guess, you know, my biggest advice is, is um, you know, take as, take as many opportunities uh, that, you know, that you can and don't be afraid to 
um, you know, explore areas, you know, that, you know, maybe aren't at the top of your list. I never thought I would be focusing on like hydrology related topics. Um, but, you know, if you have a chance to take an elective, you know, take something maybe a little bit more out of your comfort zone uh, that can lead you to, to somewhere else. You know, had I not had the background I had at Michigan State, I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, ended up at the core because, I, you know, I needed a little bit of hydrology background uh, for this position. So, uh, you know, I just, you just, you know, don't, you know, don't shut yourself off, even if you really know you want to be in forecasting or, or something like that. You know, I just think, you know, explore, you know, other classes that maybe are a little outside of your comfort zone and you might find something that you really enjoy. And I, and I would add to that as a professor, definitely check out any internships that are out there and summer research opportunities as well, because it is even though you have these core things that you're interested in, as Deanna talks about, uh, it never hurts to get exposure in other areas, whether it's hydrology or GIS or a different type of skill set. Where can people find more information? Do you have websites or are you on, on social media somewhere or your projects or water level monitoring? Are, are there any sort of social media or Internet sites you can let us know about? Uh, yeah, so the Detroit District at the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, we have a web page. Um, and if like if you were to Google Great Lakes Water Levels Detroit District, you'd you know, you'd, you'd pretty much you'd make it there. Uh, the Detroit District also is on like Facebook. Uh, and uh, in fact, a lot of the, the districts, not just the Detroit District is on there. Um, so you could find the district in your area. Uh, you know, we partner closely with like the Chicago district, the Buffalo district as well. Um, so there's, you know, there's just many, and even like the headquarters, you say, so I believe they have like a Facebook page and, and usually each district has, has a website as well. Uh, but if you're looking for really the water level, uh, information, uh, I mean, there's a, you know, a long web address, but really if you just Google, you know, Great Lakes water levels, you know, Detroit district, you'll end up on our page. And I gotta say we, we've, there's a lot of, you know, especially if you're, you know, a weather geek and there's a lot of great information on there. I mean, we, we talk about precipitation and evaporation and runoff and, and trends we've seen in the data and there's precipitation data and water level data. So it's, it's much more than just water levels that are on there. We talk about basin conditions. So, um, you know, we do a write up every month about, you know, the conditions that each each of the lake basins is experiencing. Um, you know, between precipitation or runoff, evaporation, we talk about those things. Uh, so, you know, there's a little bit more than just the, the water levels that are on there. Yeah, and I think that's where we have to end it. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, uh, Deanna. But before I go, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Melissa Griffin. Melissa is an assistant state climatologist at the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. She loves the STEM outreach and education side of the weather and enjoys conducting weather-related experiments with teachers and students of all ages. Melissa also shares unique facts about the climate and weather events for South Carolina with her On This Day post on Twitter at M-L-G-R-I-F-F-I-N-W-X-1. That's at M-L-Griffin-W-X-1. Keep it up, Melissa. And if you know someone that's deserving of our Geek of the Week, please check out our social media pages. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we will talk to you and geek out the next time. Take care, everyone.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.